Well, um, welcome. If you're new, we are uh, in the last sort of portion of a study that we've been doing over the last few months uh, in the book of Ephesians. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there, <coughs> chapter 6, and we're going to be in uh, just a few verses this morning, uh, verses 10 through 13. And we have uh, worked our way through this book, and they are it is an amazing study, and I'd encourage you. Um, if you haven't been with us, we're going to pick up here. This is the end of the story, in a sense, and Paul's going to start tying in some loose ends. Now, all of them that he's going to talk about are tied to the first half of this book where he talked about who we are in Christ. And so if we just jump right into the end and start talking about what we do with who we are, we miss a big piece of what he teaches, which is, man, your identity in Christ changes everything. It changes everything. And that's where we camped out for the first half. And now we're looking practically at what does that actually mean for our lives? I enter into this morning with a sense of fear and trembling because of the passage that we're looking at. Uh, And here's what I know. I know I'm going to get emails this week. Paulson, you didn't go far enough. Paulson, you went way too far. And so I plan on splitting the difference and being an equal opportunity offender to everybody this morning. (laughs) As I was looking at this passage that we're going to be studying, I was reminded of um, sort of my my weeks coming up here. I am um, very grateful that I live in the time period that I live in. Uh, In the next two weeks, uh, or in the next week actually, two people in my family are going to be having surgery. And I've thought, man, I am grateful for doctors. I don't like going to see them. I'm the type of guy who's like, unless a limb is falling off, I will avoid going to the doctor. Um, But I am glad that we live in the time period that we live in with the type of medical care that we are able to have. Because as you well know, it hasn't always been this good. Uh, In fact, uh, I was doing a little bit of reading this week and came across a guy named um, Louis Pasteur. And here's the deal. Louis was, um, he was born in the early 1800s and lived through most of the 1800s. And he was a French uh, chemist, microbiologist, and he uh, worked in hospitals. And he started to see that people were, were getting sick often because of, um, like, like, here's one of the things he observed, that when a doctor would go and do surgery, and then go right over and help deliver a baby right after without washing their hands or doing anything else, that that mom often got sick. And so Louis started to go, huh, there might be something to this. Now, the whole medical field at that point in time was under this sort of um, lie of what they called spontaneous generation, which meant that sickness just sort of came out of nowhere. So it was either genetic Or one of their main theories, and can you imagine this? One of the main medical theories at the time was this person just has too much blood. And so they would drain people's blood. And so Louis started to say, you know, there's something else going on here. I mean, mean, he started to see that the sicknesses were seemed to be transferred. And so he blew this theory out of the water. He proved that spontaneous generation in the medical world was impossible. It was coming from somewhere. And I mean, now we have microscopes powerful enough to know that that we have on our bodies at any given time about 20 million microorganisms. 
which may make you reconsider how long you shake hands during our little meet and greet time. Just a little. Or maybe it may, you may invest in a little hand carrier Purell thing. I mean, I don't know what your style is. But now we know that he was right. But he was completely ostracized from the medical community because what he said, essentially his point was that the things that you can see are coming from the things that you can't. That was, that was his discovery. That was his big idea. That was his main point. And, and I want to argue that as Paul wraps up the book of Ephesians, that's his main point too. That many of the things that you see around you are coming from the things that you can't see. And he's going to argue in our passage this morning that there's a very real thing that we call the, the spiritual realm or the spiritual world. And his point is that that spiritual world is so real that it pokes its way through time and time again into this physical world. And his point is that the things you can't see, the things you have no idea about probably, have a huge influence on the things that you can see. If you have a Bible, Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be camping out this morning. And I want to say up front, I've divided this. I think this is too important of a passage for me to fly through, although um, I still found a way to have enough information to have to fly through it. But we're going to divide it primarily into two for the next two weeks. Uh, Today, I want to frame for you the discussion. I want to invite you into the battle, as it were. And next week, I want to teach you how to fight. So today, we're just going to primarily lay the groundwork for how to fight this fight that Paul invites us into. Because there's things happening that we can't see, that are influencing the things that we can see. And luckily, the scriptures give a great, Great instruction on what we do with that information. Oh, there's Louis. There you go. He writes this. Finally. So, so we're towards the end. Amen. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of, strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For we do not fight, wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Now, now he's going to make an argument in this passage that there's things going on that we can't see that influence the things that we can see. And and in a sense, he invites us into a potentially terrifying reality, doesn't he? I mean, he holds out this, hey, we don't fight against flesh and blood and there's more going on here than we can see. But he also holds out this hope of walking in victory. And and so here's what I want to, the way I want to frame our time together this morning and this passage with one big idea, and it's this. Life is war. You may have caught that theme in the songs that we sang this morning. If you didn't, 
You can just go back and look. Most of them had themes of fighting. If you're new here, you're probably going, these guys like to fight a lot. Not really. But the reality is all of us live life in a battle zone. That life is war. But as followers of Jesus, we don't fight for victory. This is key. This is key. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. We fight from victory. Those are two very different things, friends. You're not fighting in order to be victorious. You're fighting with the knowledge that you already are. That you already are. And here's the thing. Paul doesn't say, hey, if you're a new believer, you're going to be in a spiritual battle. But then as you go to church more and more, it's going to, you're going to emerge from it. That it's going to eventually be something that you're able to completely conquer, completely wipe out. He doesn't give any sort of distinction. In fact, he's probably the most mature believer that we have. And he's still going, I'm in it. I'm in it. And so we need to know, I think as we start this out, we need to know the reality of the battle that we're in. Because if we don't know the reality of the battle, then we're defeated already. I mean, it would be like me getting picked up and placed into the ring with a heavyweight prize fighter and saying, good luck, Paulson, go for it. Now, here's the deal. Spoiler alert. I will get beat. I'm scrappy, but I'll get beat. And here's the deal. If you don't know the reality of the battle that rages around you and it points in you, then we have no hope. We have no hope. I love the way uh, that General Sun Tzu puts it, and he says this, every battle is won before it's fought. Every battle is won before it's fought. And isn't it true that, that we live differently, that our mindset is different, that, our, that we're engaged on a different level if we know that this is real? Like nations that know that they're at war live very differently than nations who are at peace. Nations that are at war, that they are, they are skeptical, aren't they? Especially if the war's on their soil, they're skeptical. Is this, is this person with me, for me, or are they going to blow me up? Right? I mean, nations at war, they're, they're ready. They're ready. They know a battle could break out at any point in time. And so Paul says this, hey, you are, you live in, you will never outgrow, you will never outmature, you will never progress beyond the fact that you live in a world where you have a very real war raging in your midst. And, and I get it. We're civilized Westerners. And so a lot of you are going, seriously, Ryan? Seriously, you're telling me that there's a spiritual battle that's raging that we can't see? Right. That's what I'm saying. And, and I would say back to you, if you're thinking I'm narrow-minded for believing Scripture, but I'll just say that, if you're... That, that told you, equal opportunity offender this morning. Just wait, you who laughed in a minute will be going, oh, I don't know if I like him. <laughs> that we would be in the minority of people across the globe to say, listen, we only believe in the material world. 
I mean, nearly every single African, Asian, South American would look at us and go, bro, you're narrow-minded. Are you kidding me? And so let's just take a step back and say, maybe, just maybe, we don't have a corner on all of truth in our society at large, that maybe Paul is right, maybe the rest of the globe is right, maybe there is a spiritual dimension to this world that we live in that pokes its way through, and that maybe there are very real spiritual influences and reasons that things happen in our world, even though we can't see them all the time, even though we can't see them that the Bible throughout is going to assert very clearly the reality, validity, and in a sense, controlling influence of the spiritual world. But as we embark on this journey together, I want to do so with a sense of, one, balance. Two, I'm going to teach Ephesians 6. That's my goal. Okay, so don't, don't email me and say, hey, you didn't tie in, whatever. My goal is to teach Ephesians 6. And it's to do it with balance. And as we embark on this, let me um, read a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think is just absolutely brilliant because this is what he says. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons he's talking about, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. We want to be, friends, we want to be ruthlessly biblical. And so that means that we cannot deduce or simplify evil. That evil in our world biblically has Three causes. One is you and me. It's going to say in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that, that, it's, that it's in us. Two, that it's in our world, that it presses in on us. And three, that it's the devil. And for us to be biblical followers of Jesus, we need to have a complex, nuanced view of evil. It can't always be the devil made me do it. And it can't always be, I'm just an idiot. That there's a middle ground. There's a middle ground and a nuanced biblical view that says, listen, this thing that we call evil and that we see sort of poking its way through into this world is very complex biblically. Very complex. And so we need to know what we're up against. Verse 11 starts like this. So put on the whole armor of God, and that'll be all next week. We're going we're gonna to be there. That you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Isn't it interesting, Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Now you're reading from a guy who literally wrestled against flesh and blood. I mean, he had people drag him outside of cities and beat him senseless to the point that they thought he was dead, which was their goal, walked away, and he popped back up and said, wow, that was quite the blow. I mean, he had people, flesh and blood, who were betrayed, who betrayed him and stabbed him in the back. He had people, flesh and blood, that accused him 
So what's, what's Paul saying? His point is, hey, underneath all of that, underneath the people, underneath the flesh and blood, there was more going on than what we could see. And what he realizes is we don't wrestle only against flesh and blood. But that behind that world, there's a presence, a powerful and active spiritual world. He calls them cosmic powers. And so under the oppressive government regimes that just destroy people, there's a very real evil, demonic influence on those. Under the relationships that crumble because of division, there's a very real influence on those. Uh, under the, you, can, you name it. He's saying there's a whole lot more going on than we can see. And here's his big idea. Here's his point in this. Is that in order to fight from victory, we need to recognize the reality of the fact that we have a crafty enemy who is looking to destroy us. You need to know that. You need to know that. Crafty enemy who's looking to destroy us. And and here's the way that Peter writes about your enemy. And he says this, be sober-minded, be watchful, be on the lookout. Because if you don't know you're in a battle, you lose it before it even begins. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. He wants to ruin your life. That's what Peter says. Jesus is going to say the same thing in John 10.10, that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. And every single day of your life, you're engaged in a battle. Am I going to walk in the truth of Jesus who wants to lead me into life? Or am I going to walk in the path of the devil who wants to lead me into death and rob me of life? Which one is it going to be? Which path am I going to walk? Paul says, listen, you've got to know that you have a very real enemy. Okay, so you're saying, Ryan, so we Christians believe in a personal, intelligent being called the devil? Right, right. And I would assert, I would assert, that most of us are here today because we believe in a personal, intelligent, good being named God. So, I would also press on you that I'm not that crazy to believe that if there is a good, intelligent, personal being named God, that there may also be an evil, personal being named the devil. See, the scripture is going to talk about him all throughout. Seven books in the Old Testament. Um, I would point you primarily to the book of Job, where, where Satan just strolls into the throne room of heaven, has this conversation with God about Job that's a little bit terrifying and frightening, but you can go read it on your own. Um, seven books in the Old Testament refer to the devil, and nearly every single New Testament book does. Jesus was not afraid to talk about him, recognized him often. So... Let me, just a little bit of background. The devil and his demons are created beings, fallen angels, who are created by God, for God, for the worship of God, and they turn their back on God and decide that they can do his job better than he can. 
Here's the way that um, the book of Isaiah recounts it. It's a long passage, but let me read through it for us because this is a, a cryptic rendering of Satan's fall from heaven. It writes, your, your pomp has brought you down to Sheol, to, to, to hell. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. Never a good thing. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. Fallen from heaven. Son of dawn. You are cut down to the ground. You, are la- you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, and here's this, his original sin, I will ascend to heaven. I'll take your throne, God. I can do your, I can do your job better than you can. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Did you catch it? His original sin is pride. It's, I think I can do your job better. I think I'm smarter. I think I'm, I think I'm better than you, God. Ezekiel chapter 28 is going to be the other passage in the Old Testament that talks a lot about Satan. And it's going to say that he was the most powerful of all the created beings. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, we, we see that when Satan fell from heaven, when, he, when this moment happened and he decided to turn his back on God and his pride got the better of him and he said, I think I know better than you, God, that there was a third of the angels from heaven that left with him. And this is the battle that Paul invites us into. And he says, they're not pleased. They want to destroy you. They want to bring you, not life like Jesus does, they want to bring you to death. And they are, here's a few things we need to know practically. They are powerful. Hence the command, stand firm. Listen, if you didn't need to put on armor, if that wasn't one God's command to you, then he wouldn't be that powerful, would he? But we know that he is. And in fact, Scripture is going to say that in many ways, Satan is the ruler of this world, that he's the God of this world, that, that more people have put their hope, in a sense, their worship in his lies than in the truth of the gospel. And so when Satan brings Jesus up onto the mountain and he lets him look. This is in Luke 4. And he looks over all of the nations of the world and he says, hey, I'll give them to you, Jesus. Implication, hey, they're mine. And Jesus doesn't argue with them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's powerful. Now, he is powerful, but he's not omnipresent, he's not omniscient, and he's not omnipotent, and he's already defeated. So, we we just need to balance this. Is he powerful? Yes. Yes, he is. But, but, he's already defeated. Second thing you see in this passage is that he says that schemes of the devil, literally methods or strategies of the devil, that he's... He's very crafty. He's very creative. He knows how to hit you in a way that can bring you down. He's done the scouting reports. 
And so he, need, he knows what he needs to feed you in order to defeat you. So Paul says we don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And he chooses that word intentionally because it's this idea of hand-to-hand combat. That this is a very personal thing. Spiritual, quote-unquote, spiritual warfare. A very personal thing. It's not something that's happening from way out there and coming into here. Oftentimes it's something inside of us. It's thought patterns. It's beliefs. It's lies. Satan is the father of all lies, John chapter 8, verse 44 says. And so often that's where the battle takes place. That primarily, not only, but primarily, spiritual battle is going to happen on two fronts. One, in your head. And two, in your heart. The things that you believe, the affections that you hold, the things that you find beautiful, the things that you put your hope in, the things that you worship. That's where this battle primarily takes place. And so he says, hey, the schemes of the devil. I wanted to spend some time because next week we're going to talk about how to fight, but I want to just lay a little bit of groundwork for what in the world we are fighting. What are the schemes of the devil? Okay, so I'm going to highlight five of them. That we could go on and on and on. There's a lot, but I want to highlight five. The first scheme that he uses is temptation. Temptation. And in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, you can see this clearly, that when Adam and Eve come on the scene, the very first thing that the devil does is he walks up to him and says, Did God really say what he said? And then he sort of holds out this idea like he's only saying that because he wants to take something from you. He doesn't want anything for you. And so one of his schemes is to tempt you to plant thoughts in us, to plant convictions in us that cause us to doubt the goodness and the validity of what God has commanded, and he primarily wants to erode the conviction that we have as followers of Jesus that everything that God does in our life is for our joy and for our hope and to make us more like him. See, if he can plant that temptation, if he can land that hook, then he can reel us in. And you look around in our culture about how many people have just been hooked into this lie of pornography that it's not that big of a deal. It'll it'll make me happy. And he throws it out there and plants these lies. And so the self-talk that goes along with it often sounds a little bit like this. This will make me happy or I'm too impatient to wait for what God really has for me or just fill in the blank. He's going to use temptation all throughout Scripture. I just have time to point out that one area this morning. The second thing, the second thing that we see is if he can, if the devil can get our worship off of Jesus and onto something else, which the Bible calls idolatry. If he can do that, then we are already defeated. We are done. Because here's the deal. We worship our way into sin. Every single time. 
There's never an outlier. There's never a footnote that says, well, not that time. We worship our way into sin. We worship our way out of sin. But every single time, if, if he can, if the enemy can plant a thought in our heart and in our mind that causes something to elevate in our hearts above Jesus, we are defeated. And so we think about idolatry. Don't think like little cast idols. I mean, maybe that's it. It was back in, in the days that scripture were written. Um, not completely that way, but it was that way. Think Good things in your life becoming ultimate things. So, think. Family. Rising affections more than Jesus. Think job. Think success. Think influence. Think anything you want to think above Jesus. Here's what Martin Luther said. He he said famously, and I'm paraphrasing, that if we were able to keep the first of the Ten Commandments, to have no other gods, then we wouldn't need the other nine. See, this is a day-in, day-out battle for what stirs your affections. Pay attention to it. Third thing I'll highlight is a scheme of the devil, which is division. It happens in marriages, it happens in friendships, it happens in churches. And it starts with these like fairly innocent thoughts. And if you've read Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis does a brilliant job of unpacking sort of the behind-the-scenes internal interaction that, that leads us, where the way that the devil sort of leads us down this trail. But it starts with this thought of maybe questioning somebody's motives or talking behind somebody's back just a little bit, though. Or the thought, hey, I will, I will forgive when they ask for it. I'll forgive when they ask for it. And see, anytime that's the thought, we are already done. In John 17, Jesus said, hey, the world will know that you are my followers by the way that you're unified, by the way that you're one. And so, hey, here's the deal. If Satan can divide us, he's one. That's his victory. If he can divide your marriage, he's going to be victorious in that. If he can divide your friendships, he's going to be victorious in that. And he's he schemes, he's crafty, he's strategic, he has his methods. So he sees a little hairline crack and he just gets in there and starts to worm his way. And it looks innocent at first. And then eventually he destroys us. And that's his goal, right? I mean, he's prowling around like a roaring lion waiting for somebody to destroy. Third and, ah, running out of time. Okay, fourth, I mean, fourth. He's going to use the disappointments in our life to stir unresolved anger in our hearts. He's going to use the disappointments in our life to stir unresolved anger in our hearts. So it can be something as minor as traffic and sitting in traffic, right? I mean, you've been there, like somebody cuts you off and you are personally offended. Why would they do that to me? As if it was like to you, right? Um, or, or there's other minor things, you know, like, oh man, I got so angry at my four-year-old this week for acting like a four-year-old. <laughs> I had to step back and just go, he's four and he's acting like he's four. 
And there's, there's bigger things, though, in life, aren't there? I mean, like, we lose loved ones. Or, 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 or we have people close to us that are sick. Or the job layoff that just devastates the finances. And see, his goal in that, your enemy's goal in that is to get in and to plant these seeds of doubt where you start to think, God must not love me if. Or this one line that that I sometimes repeat in my own head, I didn't deserve this. I was really intrigued, and I'm going to have to fly through a lot of slides that I didn't have time for. With the way Peter continues, after he says your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, he says this, resist him, stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering... So here's what, he's, here's what he's prowling on. Here's what he's looking for. He's looking for suffering that he can capitalize on and start to plant the thought in your mind, he must not love you. God must not be for you. He must not want your best and your joy if this is the case, uh, the, the situation that you're in. The same kind of suffering you are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. You see, the enemy's tactic is to get in there and to feed on unresolved anger, which is the exact reason that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, 26 and 27, to get over your anger quickly. This is a rhyme paraphrase version. And do not give the devil a foothold in your life. Uh, finally, I'm going to have to fly. Um, finally, uh, he loves it when we are afraid. Your enemy loves you to live Loves the fact that many of us live in fear. Assuming future failure. He loves that. Uh, Scriptures teach us that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. So if we, here's the deal, if we live in fear, if that's one of the predominant emotions and thoughts that goes on in our heart and in our mind, then we are under one of the schemes of the devil. Because you know it's not from God. You can read in Scripture, hey, this isn't from God. It's not what He wants for me. I love the way that Lewis puts it, once again, in True Tape Letters, when he says this, there's nothing like fear and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. And, and in the book, the enemy is God. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our, and the devil and his demons, business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. The fear. And he loves to just stir that up. Any of those sort of resonate? Any of those hit home and make a few chuckles because you're like, yeah, all of them do. So we need to know, friends, we need to know that we have an enemy that wants to destroy us. And this message was going to be top-heavy in the first two points, so you, I knew that going in, so just stick with me. I'm going to get there in the end. Here's how the verses start, and I want to frame our response to this enemy. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. So we have an enemy. He's very real. He's, he is in it. 
to kill us, to destroy us, to rob us of joy. And Paul is going to teach us here how to fight. But here's what we need to know and understand is that we have a prevailing need and God holds out a promised provision. That this is a fight that in some ways should scare us, in some, in some ways should get our attention to recognize that it's there but that we should not live in fear of being destroyed by it because God is going to give us everything that we need in order to be victorious. But he needs to instruct them to fight. And the implication is that some of us will and some of us won't. That some of us won't take this passage seriously. We won't take the reality seriously. And therefore, we will be pummeled. But he's saying, hey, if you're willing to engage, if you're willing to fight, God is faithful to give you everything that you need in order to be victorious in this. Everything you need. You just need to know your need. You just need to know your need. He says, be strong. And and in the Greek, it's a passive imperative, which means be made strong. Ironically, the way that you are made strong is by realizing and recognizing that in and of yourself, you are not. So he commands us saying, it's at your fingertips. You just need to let go of yourself. This isn't a battle you're going to win on your own. It's not be strong, pull up your bootstraps, take your sword. It's not that. It's open yourself up to the reality that God is at work and God is moving. And he will fight if you're willing to let go of yourself just a little bit. So that's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect, Paul, in your weakness. And so Paul responds, so I will boast all the more of my weakness, because when I'm weak... He's strong. And I wonder if so many of us are weak because we're unwilling to admit that we are. And so open ourselves up to God doing a work in and through us. The second command he gives is put on the armor of God. And we're going to spend our whole time next week on that. And so I want to jump forward. So... We need to know our need, not only for him to make us strong, but for the armor that he graciously, lovingly, and bountifully provides for us. And then Paul ends this section of scripture by saying, therefore, therefore, because you have an enemy, because there's a battle, and because God has made a gracious provision for you, therefore, that's therefore that. It's therefore because there's a battle, because there's an enemy. Take up the whole armor that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You read back through this passage, circle everywhere it says stand. It's interesting. I had to sort of wrestle with that a little bit because I'm going, listen, if I'm, in a, if I'm in a fight, the last thing I'm going to do, Paul, is stand. I'm going to fight. And I started to think, what is it? Under what situation, in what context would fighting be the new standing? Because it is, for you as a follower of Jesus, fighting or standing is the new fighting. That that's the way that you 
enter into this war. That's the way that you wrestle. That's the way that you're victorious. It isn't necessarily by wrestling and fighting. It's by standing. Under what context would that be? Well, if you're in a war, the only reason that you would stand is because you've taken as much ground as you need to take. The only reason you would stand is if you already have the highest part, if you already are victorious and you simply need to fight incomers who would try to dethrone you, as it were. That's the only reason that you would stand if you were in a war. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's, That's his point. Is it, do you have an enemy? Absolutely. Is he powerful? Yes. Is he crafty? Yes. Do you need to take up his armor? Yes. But more than any of that, more than any of that, you need to stand. You don't need to go out and, and look for demons or look for the devil and try to pick a fight with him. He's coming to you, all right? But you need to stand. In the victory that Jesus has already won. And so, hey, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 is going to say, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In Colossians chapter 2, oh, here we go. We fight by standing confidently in Jesus' triumphal victory. Standing confidently in his triumphal victory. And Paul says it like this in the book of Colossians, that he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities, this is the devil and his demons, and put them to open shame. Literally in the NIV, he made a spectacle of them. By triumphing over them through Jesus, through his cross, through his blood, on your behalf. Could it be the reason the devil's prowling mad like a roaring lion? Just going to throw it out there. Because you, Jesus has already purchased your victory. You fight, friends, by standing. You fight by knowing that Jesus has already purchased everything that you need to be victorious in this battle. He has gained the ground. And as followers of Jesus, we simply have to stand in it. We don't fight for it. We stand in it. And so Paul's warfare prayers in the book of Ephesians, which, by the way, Ephesians was way more into the occult than we are around here. They were way more into magic. They were way more into spells. You go back. You read Acts chapter 19. I mean, this was a spiritual world that they lived in. They recognized it. They engaged it. They knew it. It was present. And here's Paul's warfare prayers. Starting in verse chapter 1, starting in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ our Father may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. His warfare prayer is, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know him deeper. I want you to know him more. He goes on to say, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know the hope to which you've been called. He's like, listen, we're at war. You need to know the hope. You need to know him. And what is the immeasurable great power for those who believe? 
chapter 3. I mean, we could go on there. There's a ton more in there. It talks about Jesus' unbelievable victory. But in chapter 3, verse 14, he says this, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He might grant to you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, in your inner being. So he's strengthening us. He's pouring into us. This is Paul's warfare prayer that the church would know that they would engage in the battle. And what's the battle? That Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of Him. You want to fight? Stand. Stand in His love. Stand in faith. Stand with conviction. Because there is an enemy that wants to erode that love and cast doubts on it. There's an enemy that wants to see, sow seeds of faith or, or of doubt into your mind because he knows that if he can do that, you are already defeated. But Paul says, hey, the most powerful thing you can pray for is church. That they might remember and that they might believe the gospel. And so he says, hey, this is a spiritual world that we live in. This is a spiritual battle that we can that we are needing to engage in, but we need to do it rightly, friends. And we do it by standing. By standing. And see, here's the truth of the matter. You can stand, you can stand only because Jesus took the fall. You can stand only because he was crushed under the weight of our sin. He took it all and gave us his righteousness. You can stand only because he crawled to the hill of Calvary. You can stand only because he was laid in the tomb dead and you can stand because he walked out and said, I've purchased the victory. It's yours. Amen. You can stand because he already took the fall. And friends, I pray that you will engage the battle knowing that you don't fight from for victory, but that you fight from victory. And I pray that we would be a church and a people Fight by standing in the ground that Jesus has already taken. Will you stand with me as we close in prayer?